I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PML. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stone. Am I going to get sued? Are we going legal on this? Yeah, like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast, Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson. We're live here Wednesday afternoon. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Sam, how you doing? All right. You? Doing all right. It's yeah. It's going to be a weird show today. It's going to be a weird show. It's a weird week. Um, we did cancel today's PFF NFL Daily. If you guys didn't catch it, we did have a daily yesterday where, Sam, you and, uh, you and Trevor discussed what's on everybody's mind. Damar Hamlin, um, the crazy situation on Monday night, um, obviously... Um, we're in the same boat, thoughts, prayers, and whatever else you want to send DeMar Hamlin's way. Um, we're all in on that. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We'll try to talk a little bit of football and um, do our best to transition to previewing the games tomorrow because the games are the games are happening as of now this weekend. Yeah, I mean, it's really all anybody has been talking about for the last, um, you know, 24 plus hours since it happened, really. One of the craziest, one of the most disturbing things I think that anybody has seen happen on a football field. And we all, as fans, as football fans, watch this thing happen live, essentially. Um, Damar Hamlin, young player, Buffalo Bills safety, takes what looked like a relatively innocuous hit during a routine tackle, gets up, and then immediately drops back to the turf. And from that moment on, all hell broke loose. And part of it is from the broadcast it took a while for anybody to be clear what exactly was going on right like that's part of this whole thing is there was a confusion element to the whole thing both people watching at home where you would go to an ad break you'd get back and troy aikman would kind of bring you up to date on what they knew which wasn't much um through to the stadium where apparently everybody in the stands as well is just watching on in silence nobody really knows the only thing that became clear after not an awful lot of time was that this was much worse than the usual injury. When a guy goes down, even when the teammates are surrounding him, it's, I don't want to use the word routine, but it happens quite a lot, right? It became pretty clear pretty early that this was something different. And all of a sudden you're seeing, you know, Bill's players in tears. You're seeing guys react in a way that they don't react when it's just an injury that everybody is expecting. And I think that's what then thrust this into a different place, that this is something nobody is prepared for. Yeah, you could tell that. Um, so ESPN went to that longer commercial break. Um, it reminded me a little bit of when I was when I was seven, Sam, the, uh, the 89 earthquake in San Francisco. It was right in the middle of the World Series. And I remember staying up past my bedtime trying to watch the World Series. And then all of a sudden, like, a sitcom was on, and I was trying to figure out what just happened. And then you get the report that there's this earthquake that ended up canceling Game 3 of the World Series. It had, for people that remember that or, you know, were watching baseball at that time, similar feel where the broadcast didn't necessarily either be able – wasn't able to inform you really for a while um, until you found out what happened. I heard Kevin Harlan on the radio the other day. He was doing the radio broadcast for Westwood One. He was, I mean, they're in the stadium. He had no idea what was happening. Yeah. There was eight to ten medical people around DeMar Hamlin the entire time, and they, didn't, they were unable to get word until we found out 
on Twitter, I think most people found out that they were administering CPR. And obviously that's when we, we had already known that it was something different, but when you hear CPR, of course, that's nothing we've really seen before. Yeah, of course. And I, I think part of that is um, the players, the players all surrounded him, not I think to, you know, you just sort of, you get close to see what's going on. I think the players were keeping the cameras out. Like the players were shutting this off and creating a wall of privacy yeah. for Hamlin and for the medical professionals who were working on him to make sure that there wasn't a camera on this the whole way and that people didn't have a gruesome view of what was happening. And, and on the one hand, that's an incredible thing for players to do. On the other hand, it also puts them front and center while this traumatic thing is going on. And you know, make mo no mistake that CPR being administered to somebody in front of you is a traumatic thing. That is not something people are prepared to see. Um, so that's, I think, a huge part of this and, and why the game was ultimately postponed and, and didn't take place and everybody went home is you're not going back out after seeing something like that, even if it's somebody you don't know, let alone your teammate, your brother, your, your yeah. comrade in arms. You know, to see that front and center is is a terrible thing. Yeah, and I think I think ultimately, I mean, obviously the NFL did the right thing by canceling the game. I do think that they canceled the game well before we knew. Um, if you were following on Twitter, is always the best spot for news first, right? As far far better than the broadcast these days. And as soon as they said that they'd canceled the game, it was like, yeah, the Bengals players already showered. I mean, they were right. getting to their cars. I think there was this element of yeah, not I mean, wanting everybody from the stadium to leave at the same time, to be able to let the players get out first, the team bus, if that's what they wanted to do, whatever it might have been. Some of the first indications that the game was no longer going to go, be going ahead was reports that Bill's players were coming out of the locker room without pads on. And I think Diggs, they reported, came out with a towel on. Right. At which point... They've probably known for a while that this yeah. game is not going ahead. Or they just said, hey, we're not playing. Right. right. And I, mean, I think no that's... No matter what you say, we're I not I think playing. that's a big part of it is, however, you know, there's, there's arguments going on now between whether, you know, what actually happened. Was the NFL prepared to say you got five minutes to warm up and get back out there? Or did that really happen or not? Because that was what was reported at the time. I think what is pretty clear is that the teams, the players, the coaches made this decision. Like, they decided we're not playing this game, figure out the rest yourselves. And a lot, like, it didn't come up that much, I think possibly because soccer is not necessarily the biggest sport over here and it happened in the Euros as opposed to the World Cup. But this reminded me a lot of when Christian Eriksen, um, the Denmark player, dropped during a, during a Euros game, like just on the field, just keeled over. And same thing, I think they resuscitated him on the field. They postponed that game. Um, he was rushed to hospital. He was uh, resuscitated. He was he was fine, and they had a pacemaker put in. He's ultimately he's back now playing for yeah. Manchester United in the Premier League. But there was very eerie um, echoes of that, and in particular with how because FIFA wanted to restart the game. You know, FIFA wanted to carry on, and the players are like, not a chance. So the Washington Post is reporting there's probably a middle ground in there because Joe Buck uh, stands by the fact that he was told, "Hey, we got five minutes." And three different places reported this like within minutes of each other, right? Yeah, so it's I, not like I don't. This isn't one guy. Again, I don't think there was this nefarious like Goodell's calling in like the game must go on. You know, get the players off the field. Let's go. I don't think it was that at all. There, uh, Washington Post reports about some sort of communication from the officials that goes through John Perry. That's basically saying, normally in these situations, you give a five minutes. 
and then you get back to it and that that was relayed. Um, I don't think that there was like this, you know, call from on high that's like, all right, let's get it's back also, to it. It's also, yeah, it's like, it's the default position, right? Like again, yes. this was different. This was as, this was unique. As of unique course, as which is why, it. which is why it didn't happen, right? But, but the starting point is people get injured regularly. People get carted off regularly. People, you know, we've seen ambulances take guys off the field. We've seen guys take a hit be paralyzed and and be taken off the field and the game resumes as ghoulish as that is the default position tends to be a guy goes down we're able to compartmentalize that move on we'll go see our teammate after the game but we play the game out to its conclusion the fact that this was so different and became but it it took a while for everyone to realize that right like the starting position is we deal with the injured person once that guy is no longer there, we resume the game. When it became clear that this was something very different, this was a guy fighting for his life, not dealing with an ACL or a broken leg or whatever, that's when I think it started to change. But it's going to take a while for every person to get together and say, this game is not going on, like it's done. Yeah, so I think everything that's come out of this, obviously it's a, it's a horrible situation. I think the, the reaction, uh, the, the medical personnel – immediately getting out there i thought that was fantastic i thought that the nfl i'm not like an nfl apologist or anything like that i'm just gonna tell it like it is i mean the nfl had procedures in place for this i think they did the right thing to cancel the game i think the bengals and the bills stepped up right the bengals you know zach taylor and sean mcdermott talking it out and you know getting the players off the field i thought that the uh we'll get into demar hamlin and his uh his toy drive that's over six million dollars right now I mean, I think everybody came together in a great way. Um, as, as tragic as the situation is, as horrible as the situation is, um, there's probably a, you know a few, very few bad takes and reactions and whatever else you want to call it out there. But I think it's been far more positive than negative coming out of this. And um, you know, people did what they could in um, what was going to be one of the biggest games of the year. You know, everybody's fired up for the for the biggest Monday night game um, in a long time with a lot on the line. And um, obviously, the the thing that most that everybody cares about is Demar Hamlin, his health, and still trying to get updates there. So, yeah, um, I think we all spent the next couple of days just waiting to hear some kind of news and just you know see what's what the next uh, step is for Hamlin and his recovery. The re- yeah, the reaction thing is interesting. Um, we'll talk. You know, we, there's a lot to say about this whole thing, but I, I think it's massively encouraging that. You know the the GoFundMe, which we'll link in this show as well. We linked it in the daily that we did yesterday. But his toy drive, that people found that as an outlet. I think, you know, I was talking to Austin Gale, um, texting him while this was happening, and we were saying that you feel helpless when something like this is happening, right? And I think there's an instinct, there's a reaction for people to want to do something, anything, just to to react to. to you know, have some kind of resolution when you're just sitting there watching something happening, you have this horrible feeling of helplessness. So what a lot of people found was an outlet for that. I can do something. Here's his toy drive. This is a cause that was very close to his heart. I think he raised, you know, thousands for these kids using this toy drive before somebody found this. And this became the thing that that everybody was able to react to. I can do something positive to try and help this situation by donating money to a cause that this guy believed in and this guy would set up. So all of a sudden, everybody is donating to this um, charity cause. And it started off the night was just a, a few thousand dollars. And then we're now 200,000 
unique donations later, and the thing is over 6.3 million at the time we're recording this, and it just kept going up and up and up. That, I think, is a great thing. And then I think some of the negative reactions, you know, the Skip Bayless thing, I think that's the flip side of the same coin. It's people just wanting to do something, right? And you either find a positive outlet for that, which is let's donate money to this guy's toy drive, or you find a negative outlet for that, which is, Matt, Skip Bayless, what an asshole. How dare he tweet that? Let's, let's cancel Skip Bayless. That's, it's the same thing, right? It's, it's I'm driven. Not, I'm not going to defend Skip on this either because I think, you know, whatever, he's, he just plays a horrible role on TV or whatever. But I don't think the tweet was as egregious as people made no, it seem. I don't was, either, but that's what I'm saying. Right. It's driven from the same place, which is this helpless feeling and the need to do something. And either that can manifest itself in positive directions with this toy drive, or it can manifest in negative ways, which is the way media and social media usually works. Yeah. Which is why, like, it's why the Skip Baylesses of the world exist, right? Because media start, like, there's this famous tenet in, me, in legacy media, newspapers, right? Which is, if it bleeds, it leads. That's why all the news is bad news, right? right. You don't hear, there's no, like, nighttime news story about some feel-good thing that happened, right? It's all whatever war, tragedy, crime, whatever. That's the way that, that uh, news worked. And that's just been amplified, like turbocharged with social media, right? Social media is a breeding ground for this horrible, like cesspool of the way humanity works. But every now and again, you see this and it can come together in a positive way as well. And that's, it's great to see that something like that can still happen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the you're, you're discussing human nature and especially like on social media where people fe just you like you said feel the need to do something and some people just i mean most people are just tweeting like this is crazy this is sad this is what like, just putting your feelings out there <laughs> like people feel the urge to just do that and then they feel the need to whatever it is attack people that aren't agreeing with them or go and do something positive whatever it might be so it's also i mean you know this is who am i to give advice to skip bayless the man with millions of dollars in his own tv show built off being an asshole but like it's also why part of the like maybe the smartest thing you can do in these situations is fight the urge to do something and just shut up yeah. you know just sit there accept that you're helpless in the situation accept that you like everybody else just has to keep your fingers crossed and hope this guy is going to be okay and shut up nothing will nothing bad will happen because you didn't say something stupid you know what i mean and yeah, and, and you don't get extra credit just because you said something positive either. I mean, I didn't end up, I don't even think I tweeted during the whole situation. I didn't have anything to say. Yeah, I didn't, we have, just it, I didn't have anything this. to add, right? right. And, and, and it's okay because um, I think what happens is you think, you think people are watching you on social media. Like nobody cares. Like nobody was sitting there waiting. Like I wonder what Sam thinks. Right. I wonder what Steve thinks. Like, and if they are. Nobody was waiting to get your take. Right. And if they are, you know, they can wait for a podcast where we actually have time to think about this and process it and try yeah. and make sense of anything that happened, like a tweet fired out 10 minutes after the guy goes down, what is that doing for anybody? Yeah, so anyway, I think there's been um, far more good than bad that's that's come out of it. Again, um, continuing to you know hope for positive news coming out of Damar Hamlin. And um, I, think, I think overall, in a terrible situation, what um, the people in the stadium, I mean, even just the fans, um, everything, you know, fans, fans who, by the way, in Cincinnati that day, um, I mean, IJF, it's just football, was on the road, like in the streets at 11 a.m. Mike and Trevor were drinking beers, doing their, like people were intoxicated early, I'll say, in Cincinnati. Um, 
getting ready for the the biggest regular season game here in quite a while and you just saw a ton of respect from the the crowd and the stadium and and just everything that that went down there so um yeah, I mean, we knew people that were at the game, you know, yeah. sitting there watching this unfold and everything. It was, it was. It was. I, I think that probably also played into it, like talking about this game going into it, or like this might be the biggest game that Monday Night Football has ever had. It's the biggest game of the season. Like this was a huge, um, talked up, previewed matchup, and then it becomes about something completely different. It's not about football anymore, and correct, like rightly so, right? We are all of a sudden reminded <clears throat> reminded about the fragility of life. Like it becomes nothing, none of the, the game isn't important anymore. The game obviously got shelved, forget that, who cares? The game going forward isn't important anymore. Buffalo flew home. Like they're like, yeah. I'm not waiting to see what proposed solution the NFL comes up with with trying to complete this game. This is way more important than that. The only thing that matters is um, Damar Hamlin. Like this, we've been reminded that the human condition is a tenuous one and all of a sudden it can it can just end in, in instantly and it's it's something i think that like a lot of people knew passively is something that could happen but in the same way that you know you've heard it can happen that if you fall out of an airplane and your parachute don't, doesn't open you can survive sure but it doesn't you know what i mean like it's been a thing certainly that i've known since i was young that there are weird ways that you can just be hit where it causes a problem with your heart, which is what everybody assumes happened here, right? right? The most likely explanation to this, which is an incredibly unlikely thing to happen, which is why we haven't seen this before. Doesn't in the usually NFL, happen, right? right? There's thousands of hits that happen every week, and this doesn't happen because it's an incredibly rare thing to happen, but it can happen. And I think, you know, there's a group of people that sort of knew that passively, but it never actually crosses your mind. Like I know in all the time I was playing, it never consciously went through my brain that, oh, hang on, this hit. Or if we're playing basketball at the Y, right? If I run myself into Eric's shoulder, it never occurs to me that that hit could cause problems. Um, and then there, I think there's another group of people that didn't even know that was a, th a thing, you know? That literally didn't know that this was possible to happen. You sign up for the idea that you might tear a ligament or break a leg or tear a muscle or maybe even get concussed. You know, I, we've reached that point now where the, the understanding of what can happen to you. I, a lot of people don't know that this is a potential outcome. And this isn't limited to football. This can happen anywhere. I mean, Christian Eriksen and soccer, like a different, slightly different mechanism, but the same idea. Like the idea that the human body generally can just stop working is a terrifying one for everybody. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention too was on, um, so ESPN, ended up throwing what Susie Kolber and um, Adam Schefter and uh, our friend Booger on the you know, on the broadcast they did as well as you could in that situation trying to talk people through it Joe generally and, everybody that was broadcasting this did a good job of you know trying to get get through it to make some sense out of what was going on yeah. and, and drawing attention to the important part which is Hamlin yeah, um, Ryan Clark on SportsCenter after with uh, Scott Van Pelt, like all of it was um, was solid. I mean, as as they were put into a terrible, terrible situation. So, um, anything else we want to cover? Yeah, I, I wanted to draw attention. So we we already talked about his toy drive, which I think is a, a great thing for everybody to focus on. Um, Tyler Dunn had an article about Demar Hamlin, 
not written recently, but written uh, either just after he was drafted, something like that, written before that got a lot of traction um, after the fact. And I think it showed, it, it, it told a lot about Hamlin's story, which I think is an important one for people to know. Like he, he is the classic poster child of the good that can come from football, right? The game that we love, the reason we're all here, the reason we're all talking about this. He grew up in a pretty horrible situation. He estimates that more than 50% of his childhood friends died before, you know, got shot, got killed, whatever, didn't make it to grown adulthood. He, his dad got put in jail when he was 12, something like that for a few years. Um, he ends up, his mother, by the way, sounds like an absolute saint, like worked every hour, <clears throat> every hour that was uh, available to her, tried to get him to a, a private school so that he could better himself. He ends up becoming this great football prospect, had offers from Ohio State, Clemson, Notre Dame, something like 50 different colleges offered him. He ends up going to Pitt because his little brother is, he wants to be around Pittsburgh, where his home, where his little brother is there to be an example of like what yeah. can you can do, you know, of not going the bad route, but going the good way, getting yourself out of this thing. Um, has a weird injury where he got, sounded like he got screwed by a doctor who treated a, a core muscle injury the wrong way, like misses a ton of time, just wasn't himself a pit, ends up finally getting drafted. Now here he is in Buffalo, but he is a guy that grew up the hard way, you know, got out in a way a lot of people didn't and is now living his dream right up until this point. Yeah, it's, it is nice when you have those stories that have uh, that have been written, right? Positive stories, and um, I think that's a big part of why people rallied, right? Everybody who knows Demar Hamlin loves him, you know, thinks uh, saying he's a great guy, and uh, the way the rest of the players around the NFL rallied, you know, there's we mentioned the charity charity drive being over six million, like uh, Andy Dalton, Matthew Stafford, Tom Brady, all these, you know, LeBron James, I think probably, I mean, he was tweeting about it, but the people that have donated to it. You've got a lot of big names in there. We saw this a couple of years ago when Andy Dalton just had that miracle touchdown mm -hmm. and all the Bills fans stepped up and said, you just got us into the playoffs with this win over the Ravens. We're going to donate to your, um, you know, to your foundation. And, you know, the Daltons repaid uh, again. I mean, it's um, it was great seeing uh, seeing people come together here and uh, for a good dude, Demar Hamlin. And again, um, hoping for the best, hoping for some good reports coming out of there. As yeah, much as absolutely. I mean, that's. The bottom line in all this is that, you know, he's still not out of the woods. He's right. in, in critical condition in intensive care, and we just hope that he comes out of this and is fine at the end of it all and can resume, you know, a normal life. And, and who knows? Like, we're again, none of us are doctors. We have no idea what really happened or what the long-term implications of that are. All right. <clears throat> so we definitely wanted to cover this. Do we want to talk some other football stuff maybe the 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 nfl's made no decisions on what they're going to do with the game yeah and we should probably at least mention that obviously with the caveat that it doesn't matter like who cares yeah let's okay let's start with that because it's i'm not even gonna compare it i'm just saying let's start with the premise that we care about demar hamlin more than any of the following things mm -hmm. and his health right that is the most important thing we do know people want to tune in to hear um you know our thoughts on Demar, but also our thoughts on the yeah, and the whether or not implications, whether or not this particular game resumes, football will resume, 
you know, week 18. Yeah, football's going to happen. Week right. 18 is going to happen. Tomorrow's show is going to be previewing week 18 and all that entails. So at some point, we're going to have to bring up the elephant in the room, which is what what the hell happens out of the, the back of this game. Um, yeah. And the NFL, I think, is in a pretty impossible position because there's no right answer here. Like, this isn't. Yeah, if it was in week three, you fit, you know, you figure out bye weeks and all that stuff. We're in week 16. If this was Falcons-Texans, it's not that tough, right? right? You just kind of – it's a draw. It's never happened. It's whatever it is. Um, the fact that it is the biggest game of the season just because of, uh, you know, the number one seed on the line in the AFC and all that stuff, there's rumors about them just saying, okay, the game never happened. Let's just take – Win percentage. Right, make it a no contest. And if that's a no contest, then the Chiefs, all, all the Chiefs have to do is beat the Raiders this week, and they're the number one seed over the Bills. Right. Because they would be 14-3, and three, and the Bills could only be as good as 13-3. and three. And that feels like a tough one when the Bills are sitting here two wins away from the number one seed and a bye. Um, I've seen pro football talk suggest that the AFC playoffs just start a week later than the NFC playoffs. So essentially right. – the Bills and Bengals would play the Thursday. That you play Week 18. Bills Bengals resumes Thursday after that, which is Wild Card Week, and then that Wild Card Weekend is all NFC, and then the following week it's essentially AFC Wild Card NFC Divisional, and at the end of it you would have the AFC Championship game a week before the Super Bowl instead of two weeks before the Super Bowl. So right. AFC team doesn't get as much rest, but you get all the games in and you give the Bills, Bengals, and Chiefs opportunities to earn their buy and the seeding and all that stuff. I don't know where it ends up landing. Yeah, same. I also, I mean, it, it's very difficult because, you know, we're Wednesday now heading into this week 18. I mean, I don't know how these, because the, the, the thing that's getting, not lost, but the thing that you have to factor in when you're talking about the, the, the football implications of all this is, like the Bengals and the Bills, players, team, um, coaches, those guys experience legitimate trauma. For sure. And that's something that doesn't go away in a week. And even if the human mind, human beings generally are incredibly good at cognitive dissonance and compartmentalizing things and, you know, putting one thing to a side and moving on to something else, it's pretty tough to ask those guys to go out in week 18. And and forget just that it's a week. But like today's Wednesday. Right. Wednesday's the day where the game plan's in and you go to practice. Yeah. Right? So to play a game on Sunday, um, is Bill's Patriots – it is Sunday, right? Bill's Patriots. Um, to play a game on Sunday, you practice on Wednesday and Thursday, right? You have in, – yeah. in the coaches, right? You're already on a short week on a Monday night. The coaches would have already needed to have the game plan in and worked all day Tuesday, finalize the game plan, so you show up at practice on Wednesday and you're practicing the and- game plan. So I, to play on Sunday – Bills players need to be practicing today, theoretically, in a, in a normal week. And we still don't know if Hamlin is going to be okay. Like the difference, one of the differences between this and the Christian Erickson thing that I keep bringing up is they agreed to resume that game once it became clear that Erickson was, was fine, you know, that they were going to be able to put a pacemaker in him and he was going to be okay. That's when the Denmark, and I forget who the other team was, like that's when the, those players said, okay, we will resume this game. Like we're good to to play again they had closure right they had the understanding that this was not the worst case scenario that their player their teammate was going to be okay the bills don't have that now they are they're still in in the dark we don't know if hamlin is going to be okay there have been reports 
of sort of small steps of encouraging news medically, but that's still a long way from he's up, he's awake, he's, he's fine, they're talking to him in the hospital, you know, the things that the Denmark players were able to go through. So we're expecting the Bills and the Bengals to just be able to roll out there this week and play a game, let alone when you fit the, res- the resumption of the game that they didn't finish in. I, I mean, and, I don't know how they do that, let alone how they finish the other game. And like you said earlier to the um, how fragile life is, right? I think like players want to win and, and all that stuff. That matters to them. I don't think players want to win as much as fans do, right? Like fans get their pride from the the laundry, right? The the jersey that their that their team wears. I, I, fans might want to win even more than the players, right? So the players who actually have to go out there and play, the Bills, whose you know Super Bowl dreams are higher this year than they have been since the mid '90s, right? Are they even motivated? Are, are players around the league as motivated, right? Because like our chat's blowing up about like what's fair? You know, is it a tie? Is it a forfeit? Do you make like what's fair? Like what's fair to the teams? Do the players even care at this point? Like if the Bills didn't get the number one seed and it's like all right we're just gonna go play in the playoffs do they care at this point when their brother and everybody in the nfl that's played in the nfl is like that's our brother that's down that could happen right. to anybody at any time whether i'm a bill or a bengal or any other team do they care i mean yeah they're gonna want to go out there and win or whatever but it, it it hits differently right now at right after you see something like that it does and it's also the kind of thing that i think can change your mindset like again if you're one of those people that didn't know this was possible is that going to register in your brain the next time you go out for a warm-up or you're, you're playing your first play? You know, are you suddenly aware that this is a thing that can happen? Like this, it's not necessarily the kind of thing that people are just going to shake off. Like we're full football generally, and we're guilty of this as, as anybody, but it uses this weird emotive language of, you know, we're going to war or battle or, you know, it's very, it's not, that's, it's a game. Right. right. It's we're, not like playing a game, yep. but it gets used. The, the language that gets applied to it is very. It's very like that. It's very violent, militaristic. It's all these kind of life and death uh, metaphors. And it really isn't like that until you see something like this. And because I think that language is used to describe football all the time, I think some people kind of connect and go, well, we know the risks. Like get out there and play. People don't know that this is a risk or they didn't until that happened. And now you're telling them to go out a week later and just play a game like it's by the way the playoffs are on the line so it's time to get back at it what like that's that's a hell of an ask for for people yeah i imagine it's got to be tough as just like a running back who's just gonna all right go lower your shoulder in the hole like you have since you were eight years old um seeing the fact that the the t higgins the tackle by hamlin on t higgins was something you see every game and by the way i mean this shouldn't need to be said and probably doesn't but t higgins did nothing wrong absolutely nothing wrong but i'm gonna i'm not gonna the the person who brought up that the tackle may have had something to do with it was bart scott Mm -hmm. i don't think what bart scott said was as egregious as people made it he didn't come out and say this is t higgins fault blame t higgins bart scott was talking about the types of contact that is initiated and what the nfl might do going forward his he also just wasn't right. Like T. Higgins didn't lower himself, and he didn't hit him. In that him. might like, be. He didn't do anything wrong. Nothing. I I don't think he directly blamed him though. And no, what, he didn't. What he happened went, was, he, we, but he what he did do is say, "I'm not blaming T. Higgins, but he lowers his head into this hit, which he didn't do. 
So even if you're couching it with, I'm not blaming him, but you then describe something that factually didn't take place, which is stupid in a, in a time and, where you didn't need to bring that so up at all. So you call him out for saying that wasn't the thing. In addition to, you didn't need to make this point at all. Like this right. was not something that's that fine. To be said. My point was my timeline was blown up with people quote tweeting, uh, Bart Scott's blaming T Higgins, Bart Scott's blaming T Higgins, which I don't think he was. And I think when people put their own spin on a video that everybody can read, that's when, that's when people get upset. That's when people get riled up. They don't even go back and watch the video. They're, they just pass it off as fact that Bart Scott blamed T Higgins, whatever it was. Um, I think he was talking about those types of hits and, you know, is that something else that the NFL has to consider enforce or whatever it might be? I don't know. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not defending anybody directly. I'm more again, pushing back on the social media outrage and how some of these things go viral because people want to be up, want to be mad at somebody. Yeah. I mean, the upshot of all this though, when you, you bring it back to football and what the league does is I don't think there's a right answer. I think anything that happens is bad, but that's the situation they're in. I, the longer it goes, you know, we're Wednesday now, we're looking at week 18. I don't know that this game gets resumed and I don't know that it should. Um, and pretty much any other resolution hands the number one seed to Kansas City. Yeah, I think the closest thing to fairness is kind of screwing the AFC and pushing the playoffs back to get this game in just because it does one of three teams can potentially get a bye coming out of it. I mean, I've also seen it suggested that you call this a no contest and you essentially remove an AFC game from Kansas City's record just to make it an even number of games and that it all comes down to week 18. I mean, that's as fair as I think you can make it with the caveat that one of the three teams involved in week 18 yeah. didn't just go through this dramatic Then it's between situation. the Bills and the Chiefs. The Bills still control the number one seed if they win against New England. Yeah. I mean, if you're that might yeah that might work too i don't have a strong i don't have a strong opinion on what the nfl should no, do as I mean, far like as I said, teams go i don't think there's a right answer here it's the nfl is in an impossible situation um but something is going to happen it is uh zach taylor's having a press conference right now nfl network for our per our guy andrew siciliano um anything else to wrap up bills demar hamlin related in what the What's going to happen with the game? No, I don't think so. I mean, we don't know. We're just going to have to sit here and wait like everybody else. Um, the only you know things to leave people with, I think, are we'll link to the GoFundMe. I also retweeted that Tyler Dunn article if you want to learn a little bit about DeMar Hamlin. Um, and other than that, I think we're in the same boat as everybody else, which is just fingers crossed and hope the news continues to be encouraging. Um, I don't think the NFL, by the way, can move like the Super Bowl back a week or anything. You can't really do that. No, I think any, all booked and, any options they have are pre-Super Bowl. Right. Uh, back in 2001 with 9-11, they just canceled a week of football and that you just lost the bye week in between the ch championship game and the Super Bowl. Yeah. There were also years back in the day where they didn't have a bye week by sure. design, which um, feels a little crazy now. But All right. So um, you want to talk – let's talk a little bit of quarterback starting news, then we can jump to – some of the free agency stuff. The commanders are going back to Taylor Heineke and then just reported the, while we've been on the show here is Justin Fields isn't going to start this weekend either. He's dealing with a hip injury. Um, Nathan Peterman will get the start over Justin Fields here in week 18. And Fields has a hip injury that um, 
supposedly is they're saying would keep him out, even if they were fight, if I read that right, um, would would actually keep him out of the game. So it's it's enough to keep him out. It's not just to overly protect him in like the last week of the season, which makes a ton of sense. But it is a significant enough injury that he would miss the game. Washington is also going to be using um, Sam Howell in the game. They use Sam Howell. Heineke's going to start. We don't know how long, but at some point, Howell will play, which just, I mean, okay. Um, I feel like you just didn't want to throw him out to the uh, Cowboys pass rush, maybe. But if he's going to play anyway, you're, I mean. You see how the pass rush is doing. You feel it See if first. the Cowboys start. Yes, it turns out that is, in fact, a good pass rush. All right, Sam, strap it up. Stay on the out bench. Out you go. Stay on what? the bench. I mean, either he's playing or he's not. What is this <laughs> tooling around with Heineke thing? I saw somebody mention that he gets – Heineke has a bonus attached to playing 60% of the snaps or something, which is within reach. I saw it suggested that they might be trying to get him to that 60% and then throw in Hal. I got gotcha. you. feels unlikely as a team move, but okay. No, that's a good teams do that all the time. I don't think teams teams don't try to screw the players out of bonuses. Washington team? I mean Washington might. <laughs> Ron Rivera wouldn't though. It also Ron. it's that's the kind of it, it, it's I think it's different when it's like you have to hit a thousand yards, right? And we can it's a it's a, it's a stationary target. We can get you to a thousand yards and then sit you down. But a lot of the times like, that's the sixty percent that- snap thing, that's dependent on how many snaps follow. Like what if you like if you, what okay, if you go to overtime sixty back now, in right. And then Hal comes out here, extends the game by another 25 minutes, and we're dealing with, you know, we're dealing with a whole bunch of – you throw him back out there to get him above 60 again? Like, yeah, that doesn't feel practical. Well, they're going to try. They're going to try to do the math as much as possible. That's why you have an analytics department. They couldn't work right. out if they were eliminated or not next week. You think they're going to run the 60% math live? Now they're going to talk to their analytics guys. Okay. About uh, how many snaps. Is it 20? Is it 25 to get to the 60% mark? Right. But coaches, are, coaches and players are always all about getting – other you know players their bonuses right get the x number of catches x number of yards or whatever it is so that part i guess makes sense um the fields thing this is like if this is a significant enough injury that he would miss the game this is like what is third or fourth injury this year that has forced him to miss time we talk a lot about you know our quarterbacks taking too many hits I, i don't think it's as simple as when you run more, you take more hits. I've said that a lot through the years. I also don't think it's as simple as when you're 6'3", 230, you're more durable, even though Josh Allen at 6'5", 240 might be uh, challenging that. Um, but it's about how many hits you take, whether you're in the pocket or out of the pocket. And I think Fields has Fields been taking a lot of hits this season, and I, I do wonder if that's starting to, uh, to add up here. He's just in year two. Does that affect his playing style at all going forward next year with all these injuries? I mean, I don't think it can affect his playing style. Obviously, at some point, like, Justin Fields is dealing with not an awful lot of help around him. So the offseason checklist for the Bears are getting him some receivers, upgrading the offensive line, generally improving his life as a passer. Now, his offseason checklist also involves having to get better as a passer, um, and that's going to determine how good he can be. And he's a devastating athlete, incredible runner, but if he doesn't get any better as a passer, he's probably not going to be an elite-level quarterback at any point. So he needs to do that. And at some point, if he achieves that, if he, be, if he takes this big step forward, if he does a um, Jalen Hurts and takes a huge leap in that area of the game, then maybe you can modify how he runs the ball. But until then, like, he relies on that. Like, that's the only thing keeping him viable. If he was just what he is as a passer right now, 
he wouldn't be starting anymore. He would be benched already. He would be Zach Wilson. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, no, I, I agree. There's uh, stuff to consider when it comes to, you know, fields and his development as a passer. I definitely want to uh, to see that development because he showed it in college, man. Like, the dude can throw. Yeah. Justin Fields can throw. He can throw accurately and uh, with and he can, quote, unquote, make all the throws, as in has the velocity, has the touch. Um, so I do think the potential is there with Fields, as dynamic as he is as a runner. Just got to be careful with uh, the injury situation there. Um, you wanted to talk free agents a little bit today? Anything sure. else on Heineke, Fields? Not Heineke and Fields. Um, there was also a report that I think we need to bring up that came out from Armando Salguero, who covers the Miami Dolphins. Uh, let's just read it. Uh, if they win their, fin- their season finale and sneak into the playoffs, owner Stephen Ross might look the other way on those five consecutive December to January losses because it will feel more like a skid than a collapse. But if the Dolphins go from 8-3 and three to 8-9 and nine and not in the playoffs, everybody's job is at risk. Discuss. Feels a little rash. A little knee-jerk. <laughs> Just a little. I think firing Mike McDaniel at the end of this season would be lunacy. Yeah. Like absolute madness. When you turn you turn Tua, who did not show a whole lot his first two years, you know, for most people, you know, not a lot of confidence coming out of him after two years. You turn Tua into one of the most productive quarterbacks in the NFL. Your offense was one of the most productive in the NFL. In year one, like this, flipped a switch. Now, how much was ty- adding Tyree Hill to the offense? Sure, that's that's a huge factor. Well, you got to roll with that, right? This goes. This is kind of like the Arizona Cardinals thing, Sam. Right? Like, how does the flow of the season? How does the flow of the season affect your perception? Right? Like, if the Dolphins were just eight and nine this year, you'd say that was very much in the range of outcomes, right? The beginning of the year, and if they had done it like the uh, the Vikings did last year never won more than two in a row, never lost more than two in a row, would Steven Ross even bat an eye as far as, well, this is a failure? I know you're typing. I'm not listening to me. No, I listened. But how you get there shouldn't matter that much because you're going to view it, well, we were in three, eight and three and then collapsed. I mean, you're probably just an eight and nine team all the way through. There's some story to it, right? The Dolphins, you know, hit the ground running with their offense. The, the league made some adjustments to it. You also dealt with, Tua having three separate concussions. Yeah. And then your backup, every time Teddy Bridgewater, who should be one of the best backup quarterbacks in the NFL, every time Teddy Bridgewater had an opportunity, he got hurt. He got hurt every single time. And he might not play this weekend. So you go to third string undrafted rookie Skylar Thompson. That's a huge factor in this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, and their whole secondary has been depleted too. Injuries are a huge part of their quote unquote collapse. Um, down the stretch, particularly injuries to the most important position in the game. Like, that's relevant. Um, also, even if you take the totality of where Miami is right now, it's a massive step forward in the area that the head coach is responsible for. Like, even if you take in, if they finish 8-9 and nine and they did collapse down the stretch and they don't make the playoffs, if you're looking at this from a what was Mike McDaniel supposed to do part after the season, it still looks like a good job, Right. Like, you come out of the season saying his part was good. Now we need to fix the defense. Now we need to do these other things to actually take everything forward and, you know, go to the playoffs and win games and blah, blah, blah. But, like, 
firing him would be nuts, like genuinely ridiculous. It's the kind of knee-jerk reaction that you can see a guy, you know, billionaire making every now and again. For whom? Like who? Who are you getting? Jim Harbaugh is the hot name right. right now that everybody seems to be going after. Who, by the way, correct me if I'm wrong here. He wanted the Vikings job last year, right? And they didn't make him an Sounded offer. Like it, yeah, yeah. Like he was he was pursuing it, and whatever went, whatever happened in those meetings, they were like, eh, not our guy, not our guy. We're going somewhere else. So Jim Harbaugh is trying to potentially come to the NFL, or at least you know his agents getting the, getting the buzz going. Denver might be interested. Carolina might be interested. If you're Stephen Ross, does that you know former NFL coach, big name, you know does that blind you? Like why did I get this? Why did I get Mike McDaniel? Who's Mike McDaniel anyway? I would say though, the advantage of having we talk about all these offensive coaches and how um, the next great offensive mind you know, comes in, does some great things, and then they get a head coaching job. Um, so if you have a defensive head coach, sometimes it's tough to keep continuity on offense because as soon as your offense is good, that guy's getting a head coaching job. Like in Philadelphia right now, Shane Steichen's going to maybe get a head coaching job somewhere. So for the Eagles to like keep that, um, keep that moving with uh, the next offensive coordinator and the next offensive coordinator could be more challenging. You have the offensive guy, right? You have the guy who has shown – to be able to create good offense overall. Does he have some adjusting to do? Absolutely. The same way Sean McVay did mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. But that's been one of the advantages for the Rams. Is Sean McVay is always there. Then they end up cycling through defensive coordinators, and they've done a good job there as well. But that's what the advantages of having Mike McDaniel in the building already. It also, I feel like this is a very billionaire mode of thought, which is... This is your thing. There was a failure to achieve a given target. Therefore, somebody must be... Somebody has to pay. Somebody must be fired to answer for this institutional failure. Like, it's possible that the goal can just not be achieved through no, no egregious fault of anybody involved that actually won't happen next time around. You know what I mean? Like if the bounce of a ball happens in a couple of different ways or if Tua's head doesn't smack off the turf and we don't have this concussion thing going wrong, you know, like nobody had to necessarily fail egregiously in their job for this to be the actual outcome. Maybe if we just keep everyone intact and continue to build on the path we're building, things go better next year and we have the right outcome. Like, it shouldn't, you know what I mean? There, there should be a kind of review process where we sit down and we analyze the season that just happened and we decide whether anybody deserves to be fired or not. As opposed to, number one, we failed to make the playoffs. Therefore, I need a person to fire. Like, no, you don't. You need to ask yourself that. It's like the Ron Rivera and the QB thing, right? You don't just go, this guy won, therefore he's the starter. No, sit down, work it out, and figure out who should be the starter using the available evidence, not the one like black and white data point at the end of it. That is the one thing, right, um, that happens in the NFL all the time. There are a few organizations that have had pretty good sustained success. And it usually involves an owner who doesn't make rash decisions, who does maybe stick with consistency. Of course, the quarterback is a big factor in long-term success and all that stuff. But the Steelers have had long-term success. The Packers have had long-term success, right? With the quarterback, whatever. whatever. But you can't make – you just can't, you can't make decisions like that when the rest of the NFL is showing you you can't just fire people after one year all the time. Like that's not – the path to success, right? So, yeah, I don't think that should happen. I think that's ludicrous. 
Mike McDaniel should at least get another year, right? Yes. With the Dolphins. Um, let's talk free agent rankings here. Uh, our friend Greg Rosenthal, NFL.com. He's got his top 51 free agents of 2023. Just updated this just before the new year. Um, and we've talked about Brad Spielberger's list a little bit. And you know, obviously, there's going to be some similarities. Lamar Jackson technically listed as a potential free agent. Geno Smith, a potential free agent. Tom Brady, a potential free agent. So just the the quarterbacks at the top. I think the the rest of the class, I don't think is great, Sam. I don't think this is a great free agent class. And, and that includes every year coming out, you'll have these like top receivers and you know, half the half the top 20 of the free agent list ends up getting franchise tagged or whatever. So eventually the free agent list doesn't look that great either. But I feel like the starting point for NFL free agents right now is not not the best list in the world. Just using Greg's um, Orlando Brown, starting left tackle for the Chiefs in the top five. Javon Hargrave, you know, these are good players. But as like the fourth or fifth best or best non-quarterback free agents, it's, uh, you know, Roquan Smith at number two. It's not the best free agent class coming up this year. No, it's not. Um, it's an interesting list because the quarterbacks are very weird, most of whom, you know, I mean, Lamar, I don't think there's any chance in hell Lamar is going to hit free agency. Like somebody emailed us, we should get this guy's name, um, emailed essentially asking, was this part of the plan for Baltimore? Stuart Laverty uh, essentially says, Baltimore is known as this analytics sharp organization. You know, they play the percentages, they do the smart things was this the plan all the way along, right? To draft Lamar Jackson, get the rookie deal out of him, and then essentially move on, go in a different direction, not give him the giant contract once it was going to cost serious money. I don't think that's what they're doing. I think they will pay Lamar Jackson. Now, they might be playing the game in terms of what's the best solution here, guaranteed money on a eight-year contract or back-to-back franchise tags you know where it's a lot less damaging if he then get if he becomes a serially injured quarterback and we have to think about the long-term commitment here but I don't I think they're going to end up committing to him whether it's franchise tags or whether it's a long-term deal I just I don't see any scenario where he's playing for somebody else next year I agree and so um, our friend Jason Fitzgerald of over the cap he has a pretty good podcast this week talking about the Derek Carr QB situation and basically just finding QBs in the NFL these days and how the market is just crazy, right? He goes back through the history of, you know, when Joe Flacco eventually got paid this top money, um, it just didn't make sense. Whether he won a Super Bowl or not, it just didn't make sense, right? And when you're the Raiders and you have a Derek Carr and say you're paying him five to 10 million less than Patrick Mahomes, well, Patrick Mahomes is far greater than Derek Carr. He's going to add far more value than Derek Carr, way more than that five or ten million. So it's really tough to have, say, a quarterback of Derek Carr's level, mid-tier quarterback, who is making that much money. Um, by the way, Sam Howell is now being reported as starting on Sunday. The Commanders are officially eliminated. They're going with Sam Howell per Adam Schefter. <laughs> Um, anyway, it's a really good discussion by Jason Fitzgerald. And one of the things he mentions here, Sam, is how teams need to, if you're just thinking from a team standpoint, and that's what most of us do, right? Even in a, in a week where we're thinking about the players and we all, we all want to play like mock GM, right? We don't want to play mock agent. We don't want to play, what would you do if you're Lamar to maximize your money? We all play, what would you do if you're the Ravens to maximize your team building effort? From the Ravens perspective, do you uh, and jason brought this up on his podcast 
do you leverage the franchise tag with quarterbacks a little bit more? Steal a year or two of franchise tag, um, which usually pisses off the player because they don't get the long-term security, but they do get a top five salary for that year. And, um, you know, it buys you a little bit more time to structure the contract. And then, like you said, I, I think that's the debate with Lamar Jackson is, is the point. I agree with you on that. It's trying to figure out how do you structure this? Do you, do you backload it so you have flexibility on the early years and, and, you know, mortgage some of the future? How do you structure this thing? Because at the end of the day, the Chiefs and the Bills have the best quarterback contracts and they've got the most expensive long-term quarterback contracts. But because they have 10 years of flexibility to move the money around, to plan – Right, half the battle is just having ten years to plan. You know what the cap numbers are going to be. You know where you, you can you can build a team for the next ten years around Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. But teams that are in this three or four year quarterback window, which some of the quarterbacks might want, they might say, "I want to make my money for three years and then hit free agency again, then pay me again, then pay me again." That puts the team in a, a little bit more of a bind. They can't manipulate the cap as much. They can't manipulate the money. And they don't have that long-term security to plan and build around. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing to me is, is outside of Lamar Jackson, there are the other quarterbacks on the list become fascinating because there's the Geno Smith thing. Geno Smith is an upcoming free agent. I think that's much less clear whether he hits the open market or not. Tom Brady is an upcoming free agent. And I think he is going to hit the free agent market. So is there a chance he just goes back to the Bucs? I mean, there's a chance, but would you want to go back after this, even if they pull it all together? I don't know exactly what fell apart. Like, is Todd Bowles just that much worse than Bruce Arians? Did Mike Evans, if, Mike, if this Mike Evans game didn't happen, you'd ask the question, okay, is Mike Evans starting to hit a wall in his 30s? Okay, he just, him and Brady just turned back the clock this week. They look great. Right, but there's been zero evidence that anybody is aware of the, like anybody is schematically there to fix this, right? No, I get it. I'm just, I'm wondering if they... It seems like Brady and Byron Leftwich are fine, but does it end up becoming a, an offensive coordinator change? Does Bill O'Brien go to the Tampa Bay instead? Like, are there other things that could keep Brady in Tampa Bay? I don't know. I would lean toward it. I think he's going to try to explore other places, San Francisco, yeah. Vegas, the, maybe the Dolphins. Who the heck knows? Right. I just think if you're Brady and you're like, all right, I got one last go around with this thing. I need a great situation. I need to be assured that everybody around me knows what they're doing. I don't know if he sees that in Tampa Bay. Yeah, so Brady, I do think, will probably hit the market. We did get an email about the, the Geno Smith stuff. Again, I, I, I might say the same thing for the next four months about the Geno Smith thing. But if the Seahawks are picking at three, do you want to talk Geno a little bit? Sure. There's so an he, email from Drew Poulas. Poulas? Basically asking, what should the Seahawks do? And um, we might talk about this once a month over the next few months, but I think the Seahawks should draft a quarterback and yeah. see if Geno will take the – the mid-level quarterback contract. Um, the Derek Carr, the, part of the point that Jason Fitzgerald was trying to make here is it's, it's really tough to, to win with Derek Carr money, right, with that level of quarterback. The one thing I would push back on is I do think the Raiders did a nice job to not lock themselves up long-term with Carr. So, like, if you're looking at where are the advantages in the quarterback market, it's um, the Tom Brady deal's the best because he doesn't, make top five money annually and he plays at a top five level usually Mahomes Allen security is probably second rookie contract on a, a good quarterback on a rookie deal Joe Burrow Trevor Lawrence that's third that might be higher that might be really number one yeah um but the other one is 
kind of like what he uh, Jason described what the Lions did is they're getting Jared Goff for 25 million a year rather than 35 or 20 million a year whatever they they end up paying him it's almost like taking advantage of these other teams mistakes and getting good enough quarterback play for much cheaper than their whatever this market value is Geno Smith if he's willing to sign a 20 22 million dollar a year contract that feels reasonable for the Seahawks while they're also looking for the next guy but then you deal with the the human element of we're drafting your replacement but we're also bringing you back here to Seattle that might be a tough one for Geno Smith when there's probably eight or ten teams around the NFL that might want him well Geno's thing is also I mean this is his last shot at a payday true you know so if you're a quarterback coming to their first contract or the first the second contract the first um, veteran contract you can maybe afford to take the middle class contract knowing that you know bet on yourself play it out get the next deal going forward I mean Gino's been around for so long at this point that this is it like this is your one shot you got the starting gig you dramatically outplayed expectations this year now's the cash in you're too old to go well let's let's take a cheaper deal let's get it give it another shot maybe next time I can get the massive pay like this is your one at bat so if he doesn't I don't see how he takes a, a cheaper deal than he can possibly get this year so I think he's going to be wanting the absolute maximum amount of money he can get out of them at which point if you're Seattle it's a case of how confident are we in what he's going to be going forward versus the opportunity cost of we're probably picking third overall yeah that feels too good to turn down so that's the part i wanted to bring up right when you're picking that high should you just always be drafting a quarterback if it's even remotely a need um because you know the two examples i want to bring up so zach wilson and the jets right zach wilson was picked number two and now they're going to move on from him this is going to be a tough discussion here what if the jets didn't draft a quarterback so how bad is it that when you miss on a quarterback right if the Jets hadn't drafted Zach Wilson, and I'm not saying that that should have happened, what if, if they hadn't drafted Zach Wilson? The next non-quarterbacks off the list, Kyle Pitts, Jamar Chase, Jalen Waddell, Panay Sewell, J.C. Horn, Patrick Sertan, whatever. Like if you had Jamar Chase with the Jets right now, but the last two years you were uneasy about your quarterback situation, is that better? Or is it just, hey, you took a shot on Zach Wilson, he wasn't the guy, we're going to move on, right? The, the organization doesn't, take this massive step back you're just in the same situation you were two years ago but you took a chance on a quarterback any quarterback and if he's good the payout's incredible if he's not good okay we're in the same boat two years later and yeah. without whatever the next non-quarterback is so the debate in Seattle is going to be do I want Will Anderson do I want Jalen Carter this defensive disruptor is it better to have one of those guys and maybe an expensive Geno Smith or is it where two or three years down the road here, I might be looking for another quarterback, but at least I have Willie Anderson, or at least I have Jalen Carter, right? Or is it better to say, Will Anderson or Jalen Carter just can't make the impact that C.J. Stroud could have on a rookie contract, or Anthony Richardson, or whoever you determine is the quarterback. And even if that quarterback misses, okay, well, we're in the same boat we would be two years from now. We're just down one good defensive player, potentially. I, I feel like you have to take that quarterback risk no matter what. Missing on a quarterback at the top of the draft isn't bad if you don't have a particularly good team because then you still suck and you're just, you, did, you just stalled. You just spun your wheels and went nowhere for a couple of years and then you reboot and you do it all again. Where I think it's a problem is 
if you suddenly create a team that's actually okay and you don't have a quarterback and instead of bringing in a guy that could just be okay and actually therefore win quite a lot of games with a good team around him you went backwards because you swung and missed at the top of the draft and that's kind of where the Jets are right now the problem in Zach Wilson is not that you missed with Zach Wilson it's that all of a sudden you had a team that should have been in the playoffs this year and you're not going to be in part because Zach Wilson was your quarterback now what if instead of Zach Wilson as your quarterback understanding that he actually had a pretty good winning record this year but what if instead of Zach Wilson a quarterback the Jets had had you know one of the middle class of like if they had Andy Dalton playing quarterback this year at the level he played out for the Saints how many games would the Jets have won this year that's where the opportunity cost hurts not that not if you don't have a good team where so um you know there was the discussion in 2018 that should the Giants draft Saquon Barkley or should they draft Sam Darnold or whatever quarterback right and it turns out all those quarterbacks until you got to Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson whether it was Sam Darnold or Josh Rosen they all they'd stank so they weren't going to fix it right so they were right quote unquote to draft Saquon Barkley and anyone trying to argue that you always draft the quarterback but it wouldn't have made a difference like the fact that they drafted Saquon Barkley and they were still bad Right? right? So even if they'd taken the quarterback and he had been bad, he had been Sam Darnold. Two years still, later, they're going to be drafted. It would have been again. exactly the same situation because the Giants never put a good team around that guy, whoever it would have been. But the Jets have. Like, that's where it becomes an issue. So if you're a team like Seattle, what you have to be asking yourself is, how good are we? Because if we stink, then just get the quarterback. That, but that's the challenge, right? That's why you're playing odds here. Every team that doesn't have either an elite quarterback or at least a good rookie contract is fighting a massive uphill battle to be good consistently, right? Because if Seattle comes out of the season and says, hey, we're good, we're a good team. I don't know if that's the truth. They're better than I thought. I thought they might be one of the worst teams in the league, but Geno Smith outperformed expectations. I thought they might win four games instead of eight and being on the fringe of the playoffs. But if, you tr if you're trying to build a team around a non-rookie contract quarterback or non-elite quarterback, it is a challenge. So I think you have to, I might make a lot of NBA, I've been listening to like a lot of NBA analytics analysis lately, getting ready for Sloan here, Sam, because hmm. I might be at Sloan this year on the football panel. But you know, in the NBA, it's, it's about getting elite players, right? Elite players are just like quarterbacks. Elite NBA players are just like quarterbacks. They're an absolute cheat code and it's, it's a near must in the NBA. So like every move in the NBA is positioning yourself to either draft high or bring in a free agent. You build up this this cast of characters that the top free agent wants to, to wants to join. In the NFL, the quarterback is similar. You have to do everything you can to draft that guy. Because the other example I want to bring up is Washington a few years ago. They had the number two overall pick and they picked Chase Young. Um, at the time, they were one year into Dwayne Haskins. They had just drafted him the year before. And we brought up the point, should they draft Tua? Um, if they had loved Justin Herbert, should they have drafted Justin Herbert? And three years later, Washington's in the same situation where we didn't think Haskins was the guy after year one. Maybe that's an overreaction, but he wasn't. And they're sitting here three years later debating between Carson Wentz, Taylor Heineke, and fifth rounder Sam Howell for their starting job, where if you kept swinging... You might have stumbled into Justin Herbert. You might have stumbled into Tua. You wouldn't have Chase Young, though, right? And if Chase Young was on the field and he's an elite edge and all that stuff, you wouldn't have Chase Young in this equation, but you might have hit on Tua or you might have hit on Justin Herbert, and that's still a better play 
in the long term, you'll just sacrifice this top defensive end, right? And that's kind of like Seattle's decision right now. Do you sacrifice this top defensive lineman for the chance that C.J. Stroud or Anthony Richardson or Will Levis or whoever it is is good enough to win on a rookie contract? Then you throw the resources at it, right? Just like the Chargers have this season. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to honest self-assessment about two things. One, how good is the available option as a veteran quarterback? Um, three things, I guess. One, how good is that guy? Two, how good is the team overall? And three, how much money is it going to cost to get to keep that first guy? So Seattle in particular, they need to have an honest assessment about how good they think Geno Smith really is coming out of this year, right? Which, remember, started off incredibly, then kind of tailed off is still probably better than anything he's done in the past and suggests a higher ceiling than we thought was possible for Geno. Number two, how good are the Seattle Seahawks now and how good do we expect them to be in the next year, two years, three years? And then three, how much is it going to cost to keep Geno in the building based off those two pieces of information? Right. If the, if the kind of matrix there of those three things says, actually, go get a rookie, then go get the rookie because you're not going to be picking this high likely again if actually you look at that and you say you know what it still makes sense to keep Gino because we think we can win right now then sure do it lock him up the other thing I want to highlight here in Greg Rosenthal's list and in kind of piggybacking on the quarterback discussion here Sam is seven and eight on his list Chauncey Gardner-Johnson the Eagles safety and then eight is James Bradbury the Eagles corner so we're going into free agency right now how did the Eagles acquire the seven and eight free agent you know you can argue the list I don't think Gardner Johnson's going to be as high on our list Bradbury probably will but the seventh and eighth best free agents on Rosenthal's list the Eagles got for pennies on the dollar yeah this offseason and not just that like Bradbury was cut Bradbury the Giants was decided cut. he wasn't worth eight million or whatever it was cut him loose and Philadelphia picked him up and, and I'm t- this is why you know Howie Roseman's the executive of the year of the year this year because you bring in two pieces in the secondary, which on paper, the secondary looked like Darius Slay and friends right around draft time. Yeah. So post-free agency, post-draft, it was like, what are the Eagles doing in their secondary? And then they go get James Bradbury, who's been just as good as Darius Slay this year, if not mm-hmm. better, and Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, who's been banged up or whatever, but he's added um, a good piece on the back end there. So incredible team building by the Eagles. The other part is they took the Jalen Hurts swing at quarterback. Now that was in the second round. But again, I, I think it wasn't this, we have this incredible evaluation on Jalen Hurts, we must take him in round two. I think it was a process pick, which was keep getting quarterbacks in the building, even though Carson Wentz is our starting quarterback. And the Eagles then, when, when Jalen Hurts hit and he was good enough to win, you're sitting with him on a rookie contract. Now, they have a decision to make. Do they pay Jalen Hurts at the end of the year? What do they do? But they have, they've had rookie contract Jalen Hurts, so they could make a lot of these decisions and put themselves in position to get the number one seed and to win a Super Bowl this year. So I just wanted to highlight this free agent list highlights to me the incredible job that the Eagles have done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Saquon Barkley is number nine on the list. So that, that, that's the other. Well, running back. So yeah. it's a, fa- a fascinating year for running backs generally. Saquon Barkley is number nine coming off arguably his best season. Um Josh Jacobs is hitting free agency after a career year where he's been phenomenal. Most valuable running back in the NFL this year. Tony Pollard is hitting free agency. Tony Pollard has been buried behind Zeke for so long. Josh Jacobs is actually younger than Tony Pollard, and yet it feels that that's not the case. You know what I mean? Like Pollard is, to me, one of the most intriguing free agents this year because, you know, PFF at the forefront of railing against ever paying 
running backs any kind of serious money. And yet that guy has been screwed for his entire career by being forced to sit behind Zeke Elliott and play this bit part role when he should have been the star in that offense. So I'm fascinated to see what kind of contract Tony Pollard gets when all available evidence says that he should be an absolute superstar. And again, at 26 years old, like this is going to be his one shot at getting a payday. And it, this free agent running back class coincides with the best running back class I think we've seen in years, right. the best prospect we've seen in years, and Bijan Robinson out of Texas. Already talked about him going top 10, you know, first round grades and all this stuff. The discussion's already happening. So I'm looking forward to this offseason, Sam. We're going to be talking all sorts of running backs and what you do with that. But Miles Sanders also in this group. Yeah. So the free agent class and the draft class of running backs is really strong, which. You know, again, I think we're going to continue our mantra that you probably shouldn't take running backs and this and that. I can understand it maybe the back end of the first. Um, I'm not – the more I look into it, I'm not as against second-round running backs as maybe uh, some of our colleagues here at mm-hmm. PFF. I think that's – there actually might be a sweet spot of value there. Well, I think especially dependent on what you already had in the draft. Like the Jets is a perfect example. The Jets at that yeah. point, it was was it their fourth pick? It was their fourth selection, right. yes. They'd already had three picks at the point where they selected Brees Hall. Right. Now, okay, you can quibble about trading up to make that happen. Generally, as a rule of thumb, I wouldn't trade up in the draft. Yeah. Unless, you know, it's for a quarterback, essentially. So with the caveat, if they just had that pick, I would have zero problem whatsoever with selecting Brees Hall. My only criticism would be I wouldn't have traded up to make that happen. But yeah. The idea that they picked him in the second round after already picking three times, I don't think you can reasonably criticize that. I, I also think explosive running backs, they, if you, because you, you can dictate the situations. If you could put them in situations to create those big plays, I'm not saying I would take Saquon Barkley at two overall, but if Saquon was available in the second round, and I would do that yeah. probably, um, the pushback against that is a guy like Algier who's having a great season for the Falcons – Right. Who goes much later? Rashad White for the Bucks, where if you put him behind better run blocking, he's probably looking pretty good. There's still a world where you can find mid-round sure. running backs. But I don't hate the second-round value. J.K. Dobbins when he's healthy. And also, Nick Chubb was a second-rounder. Yeah, being able to find them later on doesn't invalidate the bigger chance that the guy that looks like a better prospect is a better player. Yeah, and on top of that, here's the thing. If teams are going to keep running, right – if you're analytically going to say, don't run the ball as much, right? Throw the ball more. That's one thing. But if teams are going to keep running, you probably want to be good at it if you're going to do it. Uh, I'm not saying the running back's the driver there. I'm not softening my stance on the running back stuff, but it is going to be a fascinating offseason. I, think- I know I'm also going to get upset when people suggest <laughs> Bijan in the top five, I- or they suggest breaking the bank for Josh Jacobs, or this is, gonna, this is the piece that's going to put the – the bills over the top is just sign Josh Jacobs or something yeah. like that. Like that's still wrong. To me, the biggest problem with the running back thing, the whole dynamic of how running works and how running back talent works, the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway to that, the biggest learning, the biggest uh, sort of method that I would take from all the information is never give a running back a second contract that's bigger than the one Austin Eckler just got. The Eckler. Right? The Eckler deal's like, great. That's, that's your ceiling. Don't yeah. go any higher than that. If that's what it costs, walk away. That, to me, is way worse than drafting a running back in the first round. Like Najee Harris, yeah. would you have, should, I, should you take Najee Harris in the first round? No. 
That being said, you look at the cost for Najee Harris versus the cost for like a high, like the best paid running back in the league. It's not even in the same ballpark. So that's the bigger thing. Like don't ever give, you know, the Adrian Peterson contract out to a running back. This is insane. If I wouldn't take one in the first round necessarily either, but that's a way easier sell than it is giving out like the monster deal that gives a running back $15 million a year. And there's so many reasons for it. There's the actual actual production, what leads to rushing production. There's the injury aspect. You know, it's, it's really tough to sustain success at the running back position and be um, that valuable year in, year out. And there's really only a handful of guys that have been like that over the last few years. You're Derrick Henrys and Nick Chubbs of the world. Maybe McCaffrey, but he, you know, he's battled plenty of injuries as well. So, anyway, um, anything else on this free agent list that stands out? Again, it's a it's a bunch of solid players. You see, like a uh, Jordan Poyer for the Bills. Jimmy Garoppolo's on there too. We didn't mention him mm-hmm. at quarterback. You know, he's gonna he's gonna get a starting job, right? There's eight, ten, twelve teams probably looking for uh, for starters. Quite a lot of intriguing young defensive backs. Um, Jesse Bates, as we sort of speculated way back at the start when the Bengals started playing hardball yeah. with Bates, that they weren't going to end up re-signing him. Um, they were going to let him hit free agency at some point. Bates is going to be a free agent. Um, Jamel Dean, the cornerback for the Bucks, that looks like a linebacker, he's going to hit free agency. He's, I think, a vastly underrated player, maybe because he looks like a linebacker. Because he looks like a linebacker. Uh, but I think he and he could end up easily being a steal for somebody. I think he all the focus will go to other guys, and he might actually end up being the best value um, of those players. So I think there's quite a lot of those young DBs that are worth taking a flyer on. Yeah, um, Cameron Sutton with the Steelers. I mean, the, Byron Murphy is as a free agent. Those are the types of players I think I would lean to investing in. Um, when you're talking about adding a ton of depth into the secondary, this mix of drafting and then bringing in free agents. Loading up in the secondary, I do think, is, uh, is a wise move. A couple of right tackles available. The uh, veteran presence of Mike McClinchy. <laughs> you get a 15-year vet. Yeah. Mike um, McClinchy. Also, Caleb McGarry uh, coming off a career year for that Atlanta offensive line that makes no sense. Yeah, that's the, that's the run game protection, I think. There. Sure, but you know, it's a good time to be hitting free agency coming off a career oh, year like that. Doesn't it make you feel old? We've been making McGlinchey jokes since the draft year, right? Now he's a free agent. Another, so there's quick. a few of these guys, by the way, obviously, that happens every year. They're coming off these career years or these breakout seasons, like Tremaine Edmonds. Tremaine Edmonds. 25 yeah. years old still, like in his 15th year in the league. Um, well, him and coming Roquan, off a career year. Like, him and Roquan Smith are fascinating, right? Because I think the league has loved them for a while, or yeah. fans have loved them for a while. They've had a lot of tackles. By our grading, maybe they haven't been as as productive, but this year they are. Um, Roquan in a new situation in Baltimore, and, and Edmonds, you know, finally just not missing as many tackles, not blowing as many coverages, not being out of position and in, in making these plays. So you see that potential with linebackers all the time, but I think there's a massive buyer beware with, with big linebacker contracts because production-wise, it's tough to be consistent, and then, you know, value-wise when it comes to big money at a – at a position like linebacker mm-hmm. can be tough. Um, the one other name I would highlight is Deron Payne, the Washington defensive tackle, nose tackle. I mean, I think all the focus on that defensive line probably justifiably goes elsewhere. You know, Jonathan Allen has been a better player on the interior, albeit in a different role. Um, Chase Young obviously was their sort of biggest uh, draft prospect. Montez Sweat has been great for them. But like Deron Payne is one of those guys with freakish potential freakish talent like freakish size strength ability in a different system he could uh he could be a guy 
Yeah, it, it also shows, I mean, when Deron Payne's the number 10 free agent here on Greg's list, we'll see where he lands on ours again, um, how valuable first contract players are, right? Like, you know, Deron Payne's a good, he's a good first contract player. You're happy with that production. Paying him big money, even as a, as a very good player, could be a little bit more risky. So, um, again, I want to reiterate, too, we do take the team perspective here, right? Like, we're talking to fans who want to know what their team is doing. So when we say, hey, don't pay running backs and this and that, it's not anything personal, especially in a week where of course, we're like thinking every about player, the players and all that stuff. We want players to be able to maximize their income and all that stuff. But we're fans want to hear about what's my team going to do. And there are rules attached to what your team can do. There's a salary cap. Yeah, we there work. are different rules and you play within those rules to maximize your team building effort because that is so just want to reiterate that's what we focus on most here at the podcast. Everybody works within the framework of a salary cap. So where it's different to other sports where you're like, why would you care how much money this guy gets paid? It's because in this sport, it directly influences how much money other guys can get paid, which for a team building uh, standpoint is not always beneficial. So why would you care that this random off the ball linebacker or running back is getting paid way too much money? Well, it's because it might mean that they can't bring in a receiver that they want or a corner that they want or a pass rusher that they want, all of whom would move, move the needle more than that particular guy. So great for him individually for getting his money. I'm always for a player getting paid, but it doesn't mean that you can't think it's a bad move for that team because it directly impacts what else they can do. Yep. So just want to make sure we get that clear as we go. So plenty of offseason free agent discussion and like all that. Tony so. Pollard is a classic example of where I'm going to be You directly, love Tony Pollard. I'm going right? to be directly yeah. conflicted there, right? Yeah. I want Tony Pollard individually to make as much money as he humanly possibly can because he's been hosed over the last few years. That being said, if it's above the Austin Eckler contact, I will be criticizing the move as one you probably shouldn't make. <sighs> It's going to be fun. It's going to be a fun offseason here, Sam. And uh, we're getting closer to it. So um, that'll be it for us today. We're going to get back to previewing the games tomorrow, week 18. Um, as we said at the top, thinking about DeMar, thinking about um, waiting on good reports for, uh, for DeMar Hamlin, uh, feel for the Bills, the Bengals, everybody involved, every NFL player, everybody that's involved that has to um, – that's going through a tough time right now. So um, difficult show too at times it's good to talk football forget about it for a few minutes but thoughts and prayers remain with damar hamlin with the buffalo bills the entire organization and um you got anything else before we wrap it up nope all right cool so thanks to everybody for tuning in we'll be again live here live tomorrow 12 30 previewing all of the week 18 nfl action